from Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. This week we speak with Dr. Nahid Siamdus about her new book, Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran, which describes the legacy of the music of the Iranian Revolution. Later in the program, we'll have a conversation with Joy Tota Hilden about the life and work of her late father, detailed in her recent book, A Passion for Learning, The Life Journey of Khalil Tota, Palestinian Quaker educator and activist. All this coming up. Stay with us. Music was one of the first official casualties of the 1979 Iranian Revolution. Yet, even though it was banned following the establishment of the Islamic regime, it quickly crept back into Iranian culture and politics. Even the state made use of music for its propaganda during the Iran-Iraq War. Over time, music provided an important political space where artists and audiences could engage in social and political debate. Now, more than 35 years on, both the children of the revolution and their music have come of age. Soundtrack of the Revolution tells the story of the central role of music in various social upheavals in Iran, dating back to the Constitutional Revolution of 1905. Marihe spoke with Dr. Siamdost about her work and some of the most important and enduring songs that continue to define modern Iran. Nahid, let's begin with the 1979 revolution in Iran and how music and women musicians became, as you say, one of the casualties of that major political moment in history. You write that the new, quote, pure society was not going to allow for music. In their view, music had been complicit in the moral corruption of youth. Actually, in the spring of 1979, couple of months after the revolution, Khomeini said, fundamental cultural revolution all over. He called for that. And he said it was necessary in Iran. He also said, exiting the ill-informed Western culture and replacing it with Islamic national educational culture and the cultural revolution in all fields across society demands such an effort that we should strive for long years to materialize it and fight against the deeply rooted penetration of the West. Take us to that moment in history, to 1979, and what he said and what they were planning to do in creating this new identity of, quote, pious Muslim. Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini at the time said that an Islamic revolution was nothing if not a cultural revolution. So it had to really seep in through people's everyday interactions and communication and the modes of being and producing and and all of that and of course in 1979 in the years leading up to the revolution Iran was a very polarized society one pole of that was the Islamists of course who eventually took over and as some would say hijacked the revolution and basically took the reins of government and that is in a great part many historians will argue because of the figure of Imam Khomeini because of this charismatic figurehead and no other faction really 
had someone like him. And so he sort of united people behind him. So Khomeini, you have to understand, is a cleric, a sort of high, very high-standing cleric, someone who's emulated, who had been revered for many years. And he had spent his time in the seminaries of Qom. And after that, after he'd been expelled from Iran in the mid-60s in Baghdad, and then, of course, in Neuf Chateau in France, right before coming back to Iran, so he's not exactly the type of person who was listening to music. When Khomeini talked about music specifically, what he was referring to, and this is something that really came about in my conversations with uh, some of the people whom I interviewed for the book, what really transpired was that what he understood to mean music was very much the music that was played in the cabarets and the sort of westernized, or not even just westernized, but the cabarets of the Shah era Iran. This, these were cafes or clubs where women and men, they mixed uh, freely, there was alcohol consumed, there was acts in which barely clad women would perform songs on stage. When Khomeini talked about eliminating music because it was like opium for the masses, it corrupted Iran's youth, he really meant that to music scene. And this became evident because not long after the revolution, one of Khomeini's dearest protégés, Ayatollah Mutahari, he was assassinated. And upon the assassination, some people in state radio, in the most arch-conservative place of state radio and television, they produced a song. They brought it to the imam himself and showed it to him. And after listening to it, he said, I do not cry much, but I cried when I heard your song. This is the most beautiful song that I've ever heard. And if you continue making this kind of music, I will support you. So from that point onward, he allowed certain kind of music, uh, sort of committed music, to continue within the framework of the state. But as you mentioned, the biggest casualty of the revolution was and still remains women musicians and women singers. One should probably say more specifically women singers because in fact women have made incredible strides and part because of the the restrictions that have existed have in great numbers pursued instrumental music and today if you were to go to a concert in Iran you would see many musicians, many female musicians on stages of all kinds of genres of music performing on stage but what one still does not see and nearly 40 years after the revolution is a woman singing solo the solo female voice is still banned at the time of the revolution and before the revolution in the Shah's era as you well know, some of Iran's greatest singers of all time have been women, starting from Ghamar, who in the 1920s already took off her headscarf yes. and sang to mixed-gender audience a very feminist song, a sort of anti-veiling song. That was sort of Ghamar's debut on the stage, was this super feminist anti-veiling song, all the way through to Mahvash, for example, in the 1950s, who, when she died... Tehran had never seen a greater public hmm. funeral. Her death brought forth the greatest number of people to mourn her on the streets. This is a woman who sang very sort of lewd songs in cabarets. And onward, of course, with many, many great singers and vocalists, including Gugush, who's the greatest Iranian pop star of all time, male or female. So in a culture where women singers have historically, traditionally been so important, all of a sudden, the Islamists decided that the woman's voice was not uh, halal, basically. And this is rooted uh, yeah. to some degree in sort of Islamic writings. And I can explain that if you're interested in that. 
But instantly, women were forbidden from singing solo. And they were forbidden from singing in general. It was really only 20 mm. years into the revolution that eventually people developed this strategy, if you will, of multi-vocal singing, where women were then slowly allowed to come on stage and sing in plural voices, in sort of choirs or in two-voice ensembles. And that is still allowed, but the solo female voice remains banned. And they have become also part of the very creative space that young musician artists have created in Iran, which we'll talk about later. But I just wanted to go back to what Khomeini said, because in your book, you say that later when you spoke with someone, he said that his words were misunderstood. But when he gave an interview with this radio station, Daria, I believe, in 1979, he was very clear in what he said. He said, one of the things that intoxicates the brains of our youth is music. Music causes the human brain, after one listens to it for some time, to become inactive and superficial, and one loses seriousness. Of course, music is a matter that everyone naturally likes, but it takes the human being out of the realm of seriousness and draws him towards uselessness and fertility. The inmate, the music, what was it made for and what kind of feeling did it cause in the listener? Part of the prohibitions against music and the tendency by clerics to oppose music is rooted in Islam, Islamic, and I shouldn't say rooted in Islam, but rooted in Islamic interpretations, because this is all about interpretation. Islam is about interpretation. So basically, there's an edict that says, there's a, um, there's a, uh, there's a verse that says, idle talk is not good. And some Islamic scholars throughout the times interpreted that to mean idle talk could also be music. And um, that was then sort of expanded and people pontificated on it. And in the traditions, it is said that rana, the kind of uh, singing that comes from the, from the throat that is just for pure entertainment, that takes one away from God, basically, is not permitted, is not halal, one shouldn't be listening to it. But at the same time, when it comes down to it, these scholars are asked, Khomeini was asked and Khomeini has also been asked, who decides what kind of music separates one from God? Who decides what kind of music leads to that kind of perturbation or that internal excitement that is not considered to be Islamic? And both Khomeini and Khomeini on this point have said that, well, really, it comes down to orf. And orf means convention. So the conventions of society, within society there will be conventions whereby certain sounds or certain kind of singing is considered to be laugh, is considered to be rana, is considered to be just for pure ungodly entertainment. So who decides what's rana, what's laugh, what kind of music takes one away from God, so to speak, and is for pure entertainment? And both uh, Khomeini and Khomeini on this point have said, well, convention, but within the Islamic Republic, where there aren't the free channels for coming up with completely freely decided conventions within the structures of the Islamic Republic, of course, such conventions cannot be arrived at. So in the absence of freely decided conventions, then the question is, how about outside of conventions? And again, Khomeini and Khomeini say, well, it really depends on what's in the heart of the listener. Mm -hmm. It's really basically up to the listener. That's a revolutionary thought, if you think about it, for Khomeini and Khomeini. Basically, what they're saying is that it should be really up to the listener 
what he listens to. But at the same time, they make sure, he made sure, or they made sure that what people listen to is permissible within the parameters that they defined. That's exactly the point. So within the parameters of the Islamic Republic, certain guidelines will be placed by clerics, by those who have been put in charge of leading society by these jurisprudence, and they will ascertain what is permitted within these structures, and only from among those can listeners really choose what they can listen to themselves. And also because they were trying to create this perfect Muslim pious citizen, they eventually mm -hmm. thought that the choices that they will make will be aligned with the choices that they want them to make. Exactly. So they're given a series of choices to lead the faithful, so to speak, toward the kind of society, Islamic ideal Islamic society. It was more the intention of the music. What was this music built for? And what kind of state of thinking or feeling did it cause in listeners? If that music caused a state in which one had greater allegiance to the revolution and to the war and to these Islamic ideals, if it was committed, they called it committed music, that was okay. But you know, you also have to understand that Khomeini, when he made that speech to the radio staff, that was still the revolutionary Khomeini speaking, the cleric who had come from the seminaries and was still speaking from that positionality, whereas later on, as he took up the state and Khomeini became a statesman, so to speak, because he was basically the head of a government, the practicalities and the pragmatism of running a government dictated that he change his position on that. Not only was there a revolution, Iran was attacked by Iraq in September yeah. 1980, a long war ensued, and music was needed on radio and television in order to create spirit for Iranians. And in fact, Khomeini, not unlike the Shah, had stated that he opposes music that is very sad. He didn't think music that was very sad was good for the spirit of the nation and that music should have epic qualities, the kinds yeah. of qualities that sort of bolster people's spirit. And also because they were mobilizing tens of thousands of exactly. people to go to war. Mm. So That's music right. became an effective tool of propaganda That's and right. mobilizing the masses. That's why it became part of their whole cultural transformation of the Iranian society. And one of the first institutions that the Islamists occupied following mm -hmm. the collapse of the old regime was what had been the state radio and television after what you call cleansing them of staff and programming that were deemed un-Islamic, they began broadcasting revolutionary songs from the airwaves. So can you give us a sense of what people heard in the early days of the revolution and what are some of the songs that embody those days and those moments? I think no song better embodies that revolutionary moment of the Islamists taking over, the signal that this is now an Islamic republic as opposed to any other kind of republic that it could have arguably become. It could have become more leftist. It could have become uh, moderately religious nationalist. But no, it became an Islamic republic. And no song signaled that better than the first song that was broadcast from state radio after it had been taken over by the Islamists, and that was Reza Rugeri's voice with Iran, 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 which is a fairly simple song. Allah, 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 Allah,
the two words that it most intones are Iran and Islam, coupling those things together. And Reza Rouyani, in fact, has said in interviews subsequently that he was inspired by the rooftop cries of Allahu Akbar for that song, because slightly sort of in the middle of the song, once the beginning passage is over, you hear Allah, 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 Allahu Akbar. And he takes that string and the song is sort of formulated around these rooftop cries, which, by the way, are still revolutionary. As we know, in 2009, when the green uh, movement protests were happening, people once again took to the rooftops and started shouting Allahu Akbar in part because this was not signaling that they wanted to return to affirm the Islamic Republic. Yeah. It was actually a subversive measure to state that God, the highest being, was still on the side of the just, of the justfully protesting Iranians who were seeking freedom and a better political system, so to speak. So what happened to him? Reza Rouyani still is in Iran. He's a sort of semi not really celebrity, but he hangs out with other musicians. He appears whenever there's any sort of commemoration of those revolutionary times. But he also, you can see him in photographs with actors and actresses. He's not exactly the poster child for Islamism in Iran. He's just another man who, at the time of the revolution, at this extremely hopeful moment when Iranians had come together to topple a dictator yeah. whom the world thought unshakable, you know, had emerged and sung this very hopeful song, but who didn't exactly envision that eventually that revolution would lead to the current uh, state. A lot has happened in the past 38 years. Also, leftists played a major part in the revolution. There were leftist revolutionary songs, some of them that were later appropriated by the state. Mm -hmm. What were some of the more powerful songs that were produced by leftist groups in Iran? There are many songs, but one song that actually also came back was not only played then, but also resurfaced again during the Green Movement in 2009, is the song Off Top Karan. Quran is about planting not just trees and flowers, but also, uh, you know, the woman who's planting these and the men who are planting these have guns and they're revolutionary, they're militant revolutionaries. Mir Hossein Musavi dug this song out 30 years after the revolution because it's an incredibly beautiful song and it's also a very hopeful song where Tuyasinash, John, 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 
there's stars and there's life and there's hope and there's there's this revolutionary movement for a dawn breaking and a whole new world beginning. Musavi took this song in 2009 and became his campaign song and I was sitting next to a woman who was at the biggest campaign event in the lead up to the 2009 elections and the moment the song started she broke down in tears because to her Musavi's use of this leftist song signaled there was a kind of forgiveness that was being offered toward these millions of Iranians who weren't Islamists, who were of other political convictions, who had contributed to the revolution, but that had been subsequently pushed away, some of them thousands executed in the prisons, and so on. So leftist songs have been used, not just by leftists then, but have been recycled even by the Islamic Republic's own personas, which Musabi is. And you write that during the 2009 protest movement and when they started using that song, there was actually a debate within the campaign whether it was proper to appropriate a song from the past that was specifically produced by leftists and it was a different era and how they can use it effectively without appropriating it. So there was also, a, seems like there was a lively debate amongst the campaign workers. That's something I was told by one of the main people involved in Musavi's youth campaign. There was a lot of debate because some of the people involved thought that it was just not quite right, in part because these leftists had been completely sidelined, driven from the country, and as I said, many of them also executed. So to take a song that encapsulated their movement and appropriated, some of the people in the campaign had problems with it. And actually, the person I spoke to said, I kind of felt like it was like Ahmadinejad taking Yare Dabestani, which is another song of protest. It's become a song song of protest in post-revolutionary Iran. Yara Dabistani also hails from 1979, but toward the late 90s, it was picked up by the student movement as the song of their protest movement. And really, it's about your primary schoolmate, the little kid sitting next to you in elementary school. And the thing that binds these two children, they're both children of Iran, no matter what their political convictions will be eventually, they are bound together by the fact they are Iranians and they will contribute to the kind of nation that Iran ultimately will be. So it's not instantly political in the refrain at least, but clearly signals that kind of union between Iranians. Thank you. 
This song was taken by Ahmadinejad for his campaign in 2005 and again in 2009, reappropriated in order to get some sort of authenticity because this song projected so much authenticity for the student movement. And the person who was involved in these conversations for Musavi's movement, she said, you know, I said it was like Ahmadinejad taking Yara Dabestani and using it for his campaign. We shouldn't be using this Aftab Karan song for Musavi's campaign, but I suppose her opinion was overrided by others who believe that it signaled inclusivity and was a beautiful song that should be used. They also wanted to use a song that a lot of people connected with and knew, so they didn't want to have a completely new song that nobody could connect with, and so they ended up choosing this leftist song. Music has played an important role in Iran's political upheavals since the constitutional revolution of 1905-1911. This period produced some of Iran's most enduring freedom-seeking songs, a repertoire that continued during the 1979 revolution, and it was again revived at the height of the Green Uprising in 2009. You write about a group called Chavosh, which was also instrumental in reviving these political songs that goes back all the way to the Constitutional Revolution time. So at the time of the Constitutional Revolution in 1905 to 1911, a man by the name of Arif Qazvini really turned poetry into political songs. There was no radio, there was no television, there were some newsletters and so on. But the absence of mass media, this is something I write about in the book, his concerts effectively became a mass medium for political protest. And Arif Ghazvini is credited with creating the political tasnif, taking Persian classical music based in the Persian repertoire of the Radif, which is fairly complicated and usually based in improvisation and creating these shorter songs, something like two to three minutes with a repetitive refrain and infusing them with political meaning. He did this in the ninth, early 20th century. And then Reza Shah took over and the political tasnif was basically banned and he promoted a kind of sort of nationalist surud and Persian classical music was thought to be sort of out of it, complacent. Even, even in the years leading up to the revolution, people viewed classical Persian music as backward, so to speak, stiltified. But then a, a group of young Persian classical musicians, the best in their trade, the youngest and the best at the time, led by Muhammad Azza Lotfi, Muhammad Azza Shajarian, Hussein Ali Zadeh, and Shahram Naziri, they got together, and many others, they got together and they formed the Chavosh Cultural Society and really decided to join the revolutionary movement. They were fed up with Persian classical music that wasn't part of uh, the people's political and social concerns and really revived the kind of music that Arif Ghazvini had created nearly a century earlier at the time of Iran's constitutional revolution. They took some of his songs, but they also created other songs. One of the songs that they revived, for example, was Hengam May. Some of the lyrics are that from the blood of the youth, tulips have sprung oh dear tulips have sprung this is a very famous song that all iranians know <laughs> Thank you. 
And this song was also again revived at the time of Iran's Green Movement in, in 2009. And people took the song again, I think, in the rendition of Mohammad Bizal Shajadian and uh, laid it over on YouTube with videos of the demonstrations and protests in 2009. So, you know, people often think when they think about protest music in the Iranian context, they often think about underground music, rap and rock and all of that. But I think that Iran's most potent form of protest music really is Persian classical music because this is poetry that uh, many Iranians uh, understand. It's implicit, it's it's subversive, but it's not super explicit. So people feel, people have felt comfortable for decades partaking in this sort of secret language, so to speak. It's secret in so far as it's not explicit. But most, if not every Iranian, sort of understands the implicit messages of these songs that call for freedom and democracy and so on, including Shajarian. Among Chavush's first songs was Dew Turned mm-hmm. Into Blood, and it was a song that commemorated 1978 Black Friday. took songs from the Persian classical tradition, but they also took other songs from other traditions, uh, such as Jale Hunshod. It was about Jale Square, where during Black Friday, a large number of protesters were gunned down. At the time, actually, it was believed that the number was much larger than we subsequently found out they were. But at the time, people thought thousands of people had been gunned down at this protest. So it was a turning point for the revolution. From that Black Friday onward, I believe it is the 8th of September, 1978, that is when the Chavushis signed their resignation to state radio. They said, we're no longer part of this apparatus. We will no longer sing on the state airwaves of the Pahlavi regime. They quit state radio and they went underground and started producing um, these songs, which were so influential for the revolutionary movement, including a song called Jale Khunshot. Jale being the name of the square where Black Friday happened and Jale also means dew. So dew turned to blood. What happened to blood? Blood became madness. So uh, describing this revolutionary moment in which people basically turned. They, they turned and they decided to take arms and, and rise up against the Pahlavi monarchy. <laughs> 
few short months after the revolution, the war broke out. Iran-Iraq um, war lasted more than eight years. How did the regime use music as what you describe as revolutionary propaganda in the long Iran-Iraq war? The state decided to make use of music for its revolutionary uh, spirit making, so to speak, to send all these young people into war. And one of the voices that stood out at the time was uh, Sadiq Ahangaran's voice. He was called Imam Khomeini's Bolbol, Imam Khomeini's Nightingale. He so became the voice of that period. And uh, the kind of um, chanting or music, if you, if, uh, if you would like, that he made was emblematic of um, the songs one would hear on state media, although there were many others too, but they were basically march music with passages of uh, sort of lamentation, of uh, commemoration of those who died on the front lines. Uh, in one of Sadr Ahangaran's pieces, he is standing actually in uh, he's in Jam Karan, where Khomeini used to live, in front of hundreds, if not thousands, of soldiers. And uh, he sings about the martyrs of Khuzestan, because Khuzestan, the southern province of the southwestern province of Iran, which was attacked first by Iraq, gave many, many martyrs. And in fact, um, it was taken for a while. And uh, it was a very, very, a very bloody battle that allowed Iran to regain control of that territory. And he sings the names of the martyrs and these soldiers who are facing him are beating their chests. And it's a sort of interactive orchestra. It's amazing. Sadat Ohangaran is singing these chants and the soldiers are basically the instruments. They're beating their chests mm -hmm. and out comes this music that is made of without instruments. And that was the kind of music that he made was very grassroots and and uh, from the ground up, if you will, which is why I think it had so much resonance with Iranians at the time who were part of the war effort. He would go to the front lines and sing, for example, Oh, Army of, this, of the Savior of Times, Savior of Times being the Messiah within the uh, Shia tradition, Imam Mahdi, the time for the Army of the Savior of Times, the battle has come, get ready, get ready for a merciless battle, tie your shoelaces, put on your headband and get in there. And that's the kind of music that he would sing on the war fronts. And as we know, on both sides, something like a million people died, most of them quite young. <laughs> Some of these songs were accompanied by images of these young kids going to war. Yeah, and some of these images are quite heartbreaking. There's one in particular, for example, of, of this particular song, Lashkara Sahib Zaman, Imam Mahdi's uh, army, where the camera pans and sort of stops on one boy who doesn't look any older than mm. 10, perhaps 11, and he's sitting there. And, 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 you know, Iranians know people. They know their sons of their neighbors or cousins and brothers who went into battle who were, who were teenagers. So, Nahid, how effective was this propaganda? First of all, this kind of music was in some ways novel because it was, it was rooted in the tradition of religious lamentation, which a large majority of Iranians would connect with uh, viscerally because it's something they've grown up with. It's the kind of religious lamentation, Rose Khuni or Nohe Khuni, 
that they uh, that their families had either during Ashura for the commemoration of the imams or even at uh, family funerals that kind of lamentation is done so this sort of lamentation was combined with more instrumental epic kind of music mm-hmm. is what they call it sort of cinema music if you will this combination i think was quite powerful many iranians you would speak to would say they they hated that music and turned off television when they heard it but of course the majority of iranians who do have a voice that penetrates uh, so to speak you know our english speaking western world happen to be from the upper echelons of iranian society and a good number if not the majority of of those who made sacrifices in the war effort did not come from the upper echelons at least not from the westernized mm-hmm. necessarily and so i'm not sure how many of them would say oh we switched off television when we heard it i don't think they could they had sons and uncles and brothers and fathers out on the front lines and this is this music kept them going this music gave them purpose made them realize what they're in it for as for for an islamic iran for justice for islam so this music enforced that and that way you could say yes it was effective I, i'm not sure that any state can run a war in a sort of 20th century modernity without backing it up with uh, music on its mass media dr nahid siamdus is the author of soundtrack of the revolution the politics of music in iran for more information And to find the music you heard on today's program, visit vomina.org. Next week, we'll bring you the second part of our interview with Dr. Siam Dust, which focuses on the birth of underground music in Iran, of which you are hearing a sample in the background. This music became a space for the country's youth to speak about their daily experiences and societal issues, such as drug addiction, depression, poverty, and youth unemployment, in the face of heavy political repression. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. To a Palestinian father and an American mother, Joy Tota Hilden is a Berkeley-based author, artist, and activist who was born in Ramallah and came to the U.S. at the age of nine. Her previous work includes Bedouin Weaving, an illustrated volume on the weaving traditions of Saudi Arabia, where she lived for 10 years. She spoke with Khalil Bendib, about her latest book, A Passion for Learning, in which she documents the life journey of her father, the late Khalil Tota. Joy Tota Hilden, welcome back to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's great to have you with us tonight. Thank you. Joy, uh, your new book, A Passion for Learning, The Life Journey of Khalil Tota, 
Palestinian Quaker educator and activist, is about the fascinating story of this Palestinian Quaker and educator. Palestinian Quakers, it's not a combination we hear very often. We all know about Palestinian Muslims, Palestinian Christians in general, even Palestinian Jews, but a Palestinian Quaker. Tell us a little bit, how did that happen? In Ramallah, where my father was born and all the generations and the family before him, Quakers came to the town. They were on a trip to speak. They were from the U.S., from Maine. And there had been some British Quakers in the region, late 1800s. The people of Ramallah liked what they were saying. So a young girl, actually, of 15, invited them to come and open a school. And she said she would teach. Her English was good. That's the short story of how Quakerism came. They went back home, got money, and came back and started opening schools. They opened a girls' school. How did this young woman of 15, how did she come to first have the authority to do such a thing and speak English so well? I'm not sure. She might have gone to a school in Jerusalem or something, because Jerusalem and Ramallah are very close. You were born in Ramallah, Joy, and unlike the majority of Palestinians who were displaced in 1948 and then at later dates in 1967 and and later as well. Your family left Palestine in 1944. Tell us what prompted that departure in 1944. My parents had two kinds of reasons. One kind was the official kind, (laughs) and the other was the unofficial kind. (laughs) The official kind was that they wanted us children, my brother and sister particularly, to finish their education in the U.S. and go to college there. I was the youngest, so I was still a little young. When we left, I was nine. Hmm. The unofficial reason was that there were a lot of difficulties, some of them racial, my father being a, a brown man, a Palestinian native. And the American teachers and staff had a hard time taking orders. He was the principal. He was the principal for 27 years. So even though he was in brown country, (laughs) being brown did pose a problem for him. It did. It did. He wasn't one of these people who would sit by and go along with things. He spoke out. He was very strong about his views, and he didn't like to be put down. So he did have some difficulties, especially with a couple of people. So it's kind of ironic that in Palestine he had trouble, but in order to solve that problem, he had to go to America, which is even more dominated by so-called white people. Yes, in the U.S. My father did experience some racism, but on the whole, he really fought for his dignity and for his goals from the time he came to the U.S. at age 20 to complete his schooling and then got his Ph.D. at Columbia, and so forth. Generally, he just found American society pleased him a lot. He really liked it, and he believed in the democratic ideals and so forth. And this is 1906. He came the first time in 1906, if I remember correctly. And even back then, there was more of an open society, more tolerance, I guess, than than where he came from, at least in his surroundings. Well, his big issue when he came to the U.S. 
especially when he was working in New York at the Institute for Arab American Affairs. The difficulties he had there was with Zionism. So the racism was kind of a minor thing. I mean, he experienced it when he was younger, but he didn't really mention it as he got older. It was Zionism that was so hard for him to deal with. In Palestine, when he felt racism and insubordination from his own subordinates, that was not necessarily tied to Zionism. It was just no. plain old white racism that he felt. Yeah, and it was unconscious racism, as racism so often is. Mm. And it was still intolerable because it, it got in the way of his carrying out his duties as principal. Let's go back a little bit and retrace his steps as a young person who went and got an education, came back to Palestine. Give us a brief overview of his life's itinerary and journey. His goal from the earliest days, from the time he was a little boy, was to get a good education. So he went to a lot of schools in his region around Ramallah, Jerusalem, in Lebanon. He wanted to go to the U.S. So when he was 20, he went by himself to the U.S., taking a couple of different ships and finally getting to uh, New York. How did he support himself going to a completely different country? He had some help. His family helped him. He had five sisters who were all older. Two of them were teaching, and they helped. His family was, you know, of modest, very modest means. So the missionaries and teachers at the friend schools helped him. That was the last place that he had been schooling. And he got a scholarship. When he got to the U.S., he had helped him to find a school. He found a co-educational school in Maine and got a partial scholarship so that he could work some of his expenses off. So he always had to work. In the summers, he got jobs. When he was in college, he, he went to Clark College in Worcester, Massachusetts. He earned his rent money by helping the landladies with his rented room. <laughs> mm. He shoveled snow, he shoveled coal. He did whatever they needed to do around the house. Eventually, he was introduced to the selling of aluminum kitchenware. And once he started doing that, I mean, he had to carry a heavy suitcase of samples around the countryside or the city or wherever he was. That was hard work, but he made good money, and he was really happy. So this is in his late 20s or, or yes. thereabouts? Yes, And at some point, he goes back to Palestine. Yes, he went back to Palestine. He was offered the job of principal. I believe it was 1914, and Palestine was still under the Ottoman Empire. And his father had paid off somebody so that my father didn't have to go in the Turkish army. Mm. So he had to go into the reserves, nonetheless. So he was principal of the French boys' school, and at the same time, he was in the reserves in Jerusalem. Finally, by the end of that summer, it looked like World War was cooking up. So he went AWOL. And in those days... You didn't have to have passports and visas and all this stuff. He just left. He left the country and went back to the U.S., married his sweetheart, who was his first wife, and was working on his M.A., starting to work on his Ph.D. at Columbia. 
and heard about a job in Jerusalem at a teacher training college. The British mandate was in control at that time. He took this job and soon after, you know, being like the vice principal, the vice director, he was promoted to being the principal. So my father was there for quite a few years. It seems that his faith also was a very important part of his life. He was very much guided by his religious beliefs, and he had been brought up. His father had all these children, but he brought them up on the Bible, all the Bible stories. And the Bible stories weren't some faraway thing as it is in the West. And his father would take him on a ride to see places that were mentioned in the Bible and tell him stories about it. So continue the journey, your father's journey. So he comes back at some point and gets married. Well, he was married to his first wife when he was teaching at the teacher training college in Jerusalem. It's called a college, but I mean, like I say, these students were high school age by our standards, but they took it very seriously. So the British boss of the schools wanted my father out of the teaching and principalship. He kicked him upstairs to a desk job. My father wouldn't take a desk job. He was a dedicated teacher. This is during the British mandate? During the British mandate, Mm. yep. So he and his wife packed up and went back to the U.S. and got a job at a friend's meeting in Massachusetts where he was, I don't know what his position was called, but because friends' meetings aren't run by a director, they kind of ran the programs, the social programs that the meeting had, and pulled together the people of the town who were members of the friends' meeting. Meeting is another word for like a church. During that period of time, the war had started, First World War. So my father, he was too old to be in active service. So he volunteered to be a secretary for the YMCA. They were in the U.S., and he left from New York on a troop ship and immediately started teaching them. You know, they would sing. (laughs) Big group of guys, young guys, you know. He was in charge of entertainment and food and logistical stuff. He kept diaries of this. This was fun to read his diaries. So he was in France for two years. When he came back, he found out about a job for principal in the Friends Boys School in Ramallah, his old school. So they went back. So this is the Quaker school where... Where he grew up. He grew up. Mm -hmm. So he became the principal of this school. He became the principal. It was around 1926, 27 when he started as principal. And at that time, his wife was showing signs of depression, and she died. And he married my mother soon after. She had come in as a new teacher that year. This is a woman from the United States. Yes, my mother was from South Dakota, and she was also a Quaker and had had a religious upbringing. They were a good match. So you guys never had to experience what most Palestinians experienced in 1948. You left before the Nakba. Yes. Tell us how you were affected indirectly, perhaps, from where you were in this country. How did that affect your father? Oh, it affected him very badly. At the time that that happened, that partition occurred, he was working in New York as the director of the Institute for Arab American Affairs, and they had a lot of interactions with the UN. And my father 
lectured and wrote. He wrote articles and letters to the editors of papers trying to educate Americans about the situation over there and what was going on. Because, as always, Americans get a very warped view of what is going on. So that is one of the big themes in the book, really, is showing the reader what was going on with Palestine at that time. It's not just about my father and his life. So he was doing his best and kind of going swimming against the tide since obviously there are a lot more people in New York who were propagandizing in yes. the opposite direction and they got results. And they got results. He tried, you know, writing letters to Truman and to people in Congress and he didn't really get anywhere. It was devastating for him actually. And for those Palestinians to whom he went for funds, he was not only the director lecturing and writing and all this, he was raising money. It was too many jobs for one man. And he not only traveled around the U.S., he went to South America. There were a lot of Palestinians there. I have his letters from South America. Some of these guys down there were so furious that Palestine was lost. They wouldn't give money. So the institute basically went broke and had to close down. You would think if they're furious, that might motivate them to be active and, yeah. and give money. No, that wasn't what happened. <laughs> they were furious and they gave up. They blamed the institute and my father. You didn't save Palestine. <laughs> <laughs> After that happened, what was the rest of his life like? He and mother immigrated to California from New Jersey. My brother and sister and I were all in Quaker schools in New England. The older two went off to college and so forth, and I joined my parents later in California and finished high school there. So my father started writing, and also he, in 1952, he went to the Middle East. The Institute had closed in about 1950, and he went back to not just Palestine, but all of the Middle East in 52. He went to as many places as he could. Those letters are wonderful. We have those letters from him. When he came back, he wrote Dynamite in the Middle East. I mean, he foresaw what is happening now. He could see what direction things were going in. The violence and the despair. Yeah, I don't think he saw as severe a situation as we have now. But... He knew it was going to blow up. All the countries were occupied. So did he live to see some of these countries become independent? No, he didn't live to see that. He died in 55. Just on the cusp of things starting to happen. Yeah, and he was alive to see Syria be free of the French. What's fascinating about this book is that through the journey of one human being, you see so many epic things happening. Yeah. First under the... Ottoman Empire, and then the, the British Mandate, and then Israel. Mm -hmm. So he came at the time when everything was shifting in dramatic ways. Mm -hmm. He saw two world wars. He mm -hmm. saw the Nakba. He saw all of that. And my mother kept everything that she could, letters, diaries, newspaper articles. When I started working on this book, I kept finding all this material and lots of photographs.
Joy Tota Hilden is the author of A Passion for Learning, The Life Journey of Khalil Tota, a Palestinian Quaker educator and activist. For more information, visit bumina.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.